This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. We're joined today by Congressman G.K. Butterfield, a Democrat from North Carolina. We're going to talk about voting rights, voting suppression, the anniversary of the Shelby versus Holder decision, the Supreme Court decision that rearranged some of our uh, our voting laws and whatever else tends to come up. Congressman Butterfield, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me. So before we get into H.R. 4, some of the legislation that you and your House Democratic colleagues have advanced on voting rights, I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about your personal story, your family, uh, and its involvement in voting rights and and in Wilson, North Carolina, where you're from. It goes back uh, several decades and and generations. Just talk a little bit about your, your background and how you got to this place as a member of Congress. Well, that's a good place to begin. My dad was a Bermuda a native, immigrated to the U.S. in 1917, then went to college and dental school, and finally settled in Wilson, North Carolina, my hometown, in 1928. He came to Wilson to marry my mother. She was the daughter of a local Baptist minister who was very prominent in the community. And so dad came into a very loving community. When he arrived, he was approached by the white political establishment and told that he was welcome in the community, that the Negro community needed a dentist, in that same conversation. They mentioned to him that my grandfather, who was my mother's father, was half white. He had been fathered by a white gentleman in in 1866, and that they didn't talk about it very often, but they considered my mother to be a very special person because she was the granddaughter of some of their relatives. And so they awarded my dad a favor to register to vote. And dad went down and registered to vote, becoming the 40th African-American in the community to be registered. As the years went on, Dad tried to get other African-Americans registered to vote, and he was met with fierce opposition from the white political establishment. And he was reminded that this was a political favor to him and was not intended to open the floodgate for African-American voter registration. And so my dad stopped it. The Second World War and the Depression set in, and there was not much political activity here in the community. But starting in the late 40s, Dad came back in a resurgence of activity and this time organized the NAACP branch in the community. And their primary focus was voter registration. The city was divided into six wards, but Ward 3 had a very strange configuration. It was very elongated. The reason it was elongated is because the political establishment realized that one day African-Americans would have voting power, and they wanted to make sure that the African-American community in that ward did not have the ability to elect an alderman to the board of aldermen. And so in 1947, Dad and a few others launched a voter registration drive, particularly focused on Ward 3. And by 1953, there was an equal number of African-American registered voters as there were white voters. I recall the uh, voter registration effort. I was a toddler. Dad ran for the Board of Aldermen in 1953, and it was a tie vote. And in order to resolve the tie, the law required that both names be placed in a container for a lottery-style decision. That happened, and my dad became victor. 
And so in 1953, Dad was elected to what we now know as the Wilson City Council. Because of that victory and, and success, my dad was appointed by the mayor as the chairman of the finance committee. That was too much for the power structure in 1957 when it was time for re-election. My family was on a, a family vacation in Queens, New York. While there, we got word that the city council was calling an emergency meeting to change the method of election from district elections to at large. Dad returned. He unsuccessfully fought the change in election procedure. And in 1957, Dad had to run citywide and came in last place. Not only was it an at-large election system that he had to experience, but also another technique called full slate voting. There were six aldermen on the ballot. The new law required a mandatory vote for all six candidates, which prevented the minority community from single-shot voting for my father or some other minority candidate. And it was very, very effective. Dad lost in 1957. Pretty upset about it. I was 10 years old at the time. Made an impression on me. I resulted that wanted to go into politics and become a lawyer for some strange reason. And the African-American community went without representation in a community where Black people were 35% of the population. I give you all of that background to say that all of this laid a predicate for the 1965 Voting Rights Act. When Congress started doing its research, laid the foundation for the Voting Rights Act of 1965, my home community, Wilson, was an example of why we need Section 5. Because had there been a preclearance provision, uh, then the Department of Justice would have never pre-cleared a change from district to at-large elections. Never would have happened. Never would have approved a vote for six scheme. And so I'm proud to say that Section 5 was based in part on the experience in my home community of Wilson. The Voter Rights Act passed in 1965. By 1968, not much was changing. And I was coming into my own at the time. I was a college student. And so I led a voter registration drive to educate African-Americans that no longer do you need a literacy test. The literacy test had been placed on the books way back in 1900 at the turn of the century. A lot of African-Americans were fearful to register to vote because they knew that they could not pass the literacy test, even if they were literate, because so often the, the registrar would refuse registration, even if the person was, was literate. And so in 1968, we made a, an effort to educate African-Americans statewide that no longer is there a literacy test, that they could register to vote simply by being 21 years of age or older and a citizen and resident of the jurisdiction. And so in 1968, I led a march, a 50-mile march from the place where I went to college to my home community, demonstrating the importance of registering to vote. Because of that, in part, uh, thousands of African-Americans who had previously been reluctant to register to vote suddenly became interested in in the electoral process, had an African-American running for governor and one running for Congress. Knowing that they could not win, they placed their names on the ballot as a stimulant to get African-Americans registered to vote. And so that's why on June 25th of 2013, when the U.S. Supreme Court dealt us a very severe blow in Shelby versus Holder, we were so disappointed because Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act prevented many changes in election procedures down through the years. And now the these states are are at liberty uh, to pass discriminatory election laws and to impose those laws without any type of preclearance. The only remedy that's now available to minority citizens to defend against a voting change is to file a multi-million dollar Section 2 lawsuit, as we call it, in federal court. The lawsuit is expensive, very difficult to win, 
You have to have expert witnesses and map drawers. It is a burden to bring a case in federal court. The plaintiffs have the burden of proof, whereby in a, in a preclearance situation, it is the jurisdiction who has the burden of proof in demonstrating that the election change does not have a discriminatory effect. Now, I could go on and on about this. As you can see, I'm well versed in it, but I'm going to stop now. When Democrats took over the House majority after the 2018 elections, you drew up uh, several priorities and numbered the bills accordingly. And H.R. 4, which you passed last year in December, would basically restore a lot of the protections in the Voting Rights Act that were sort of cast aside by the Shelby decision. Sure. And that passed. The Senate is its own entity. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, has sort of said that he doesn't really have a lot of interest in that or, or a lot of the bills. So we have this election coming up. It's only four months away now. But what can we expect from House Democrats? I mean, you've passed that legislation, but what can be done in the interim in terms of is this just a political issue to run on in, in the campaign from now and then you, you start again? assuming you know the election results are favorable to your party sure. in 2021? What, what's the next step here? Sure. Let's continue to put H.R. 4 into context. First of all, our listeners and viewers need to understand that the Supreme Court did not invalidate Section 5. That's a real mm -hmm. important point. It did not invalidate Section 5. Section 5 is the part of the Voting Rights Act that requires preclearance. Mm -hmm. What has been invalidated is Section 4 which is the section that creates the formula for deciding which jurisdictions are covered under Section 5. Okay. And so there's been a lot of confusion about that, but H.R. 4 sets that out in, in very striking detail. Section 5 has not been invalidated. What Chief Justice Roberts said, a preclearance provision is, is still necessary. There's still discrimination in voting in America. There's still racially polarized voting in America. That means that uh, white voters are inclined to never vote for an African-American candidate. And when you have polarized voting to this extent, then it makes ineffective the ability of the minority community to elect the candidate of their choice. What the Supreme Court did was to invite the Congress of the United States to revisit Section 4 and to use contemporary data. It was using 1964 data, and this was 2013. And so the court invited Congress to update the formula. And so Congresswoman Terry Sewell, with her legislation, and Congressman John Lewis, we offered uh, some constructive ideas as to how we could update the Section 4 formula. And it will bring uh, certain states and into uh, the definition of Section 4. Uh, some states would have to get their changes pre-cleared. Other states would not. Some counties would, depending upon the number of objections and successful complaints that have been lodged over the last 15 years. I believe that it will be a, a priority for Democrats in the 117th Congress. It appears that Democrats will become the majority party in the United States Senate, maybe by a narrow margin, but a majority party nonetheless. And we will maintain the majority in, in the House of Representatives. We will have a Democratic president and vice president, and hopefully we can enthusiastically pass an update to Section 4 very early in the 117th Congress. But in the meantime, We've got to make sure that voters understand the, the incredible importance, the significance of the 2020 elections. We must get this right. If we fail, not only will we not be able to update the Voting Rights Act, but we will continue to have division and, and a lot of uh, dysfunction, to put it mildly, in our federal government.
And so I look forward to the November elections because so much is at stake. Joe Biden, our Democratic nominee, is in the process of selecting uh, his running mate. This uh, ticket will be able to take the Democratic message to the American people. You're referring to a lot of polls that show, you know, Joe Biden with a fairly healthy lead in in battleground states as well as nationally, as well as, you know, favorable polling for your party in in the Senate, including in the Senate race that you all have going on down in North Carolina versus Tom Tillis and Cal Cunningham. Yes. Is there a danger of complacency this far out with, with that kind of lead? There's always a danger of complacency. I've been involved in presidential elections now for more years than I want to acknowledge. There's also always the danger of complacency. And it's even complicated now by the pandemic. So many of our voters do not want to get out and expose themselves to getting sick. Many African-American voters are predisposed to chronic illnesses. Many are senior citizens and simply don't want to get out to vote. They are not sure about how to use the absentee vote provisions. And so what we are advocating on my committee, on the election subcommittee, we are advocating vote by mail. A lot of people are confused about what that really means, but it simply means that we want to appropriate, and the House has already passed this, and it's awaiting action in the Senate. We want to appropriate $4 billion for 100% grants to the states to conduct alternative voting. And we call alternative voting, voting by mail. It would require, if a state accepted the grant to mail a live ballot to every registered voter in the state. Because the forecast now for the pandemic in the fall is just beyond our imagination, which will really put a chilling effect on voter participation. Republicans are pushing back on vote by mail and President Trump is using every uh, baseless argument that he can dream of to suggest that voting by mail is, is fraught with fraud and it's not reliable. Well, that is not the case. The president votes by mail. The vice president votes by mail. Several states have a vote by mail system, and we need to implement that nationwide. Never do we want to take away in-person voting, but want to give voters an option to vote by mail. Well, Congressman, uh, you, you actually prompted my last question, which was about your role on the House Administration Committee's election subcommittee. It sounds like this oversight's going to continue. I know that it's sometimes can be a little tricky with some of the remote hearings, but I understand you'll be coming back next week for uh, sort of a sprint to the end for appropriations bills and so forth. So I'm guessing we'll probably see some debate ab- about some of these issues as the House takes up those spending bills. Well, uh, there was a lot to unpack in that last question, and, and thank you for asking me that. We do, in fact, come back next week. And so we have a a lot of things that we must do before the end of the year. My committee, the election subcommittee, we are watching voter disenfranchisement very closely across the country. We are getting some very bad reports from some jurisdictions about polling place locations and how they're being shut down, how the equipment is not working, how jurisdictions are refusing to move polling locations to safer locations where they can have larger voting enclosures. And, And so we're watching it very closely. But Please know that the election subcommittee has its eyes wide open and we are watching activity at the state level, particularly as it pertains to federal election. And we will engage, we will call in the Department of Justice if we see any gross abuses, because we must have a 100% turnout in this election. Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarian, Green, all of our voters, every voter needs to be able to vote and to vote safely. That should be our goal. We know that 100% of the voters are not going to vote, but it should be our goal to have a 100% participation rate in this election. And if we can do that, then democracy will be served and we will be able to have confidence in the outcome of the election. 
not only does the presidential nominee have to win the popular vote, he has to win the, the Electoral College as well. My committee has jurisdiction over the Electoral College. A lot of people don't realize that. And so we want to make sure that the, that the will of the American people is properly and fully expressed in the November election. Thank you very much, Congressman. We'll let you go so you can get ready for your markup. And thank you for taking the time uh, to, to speak to us today. Thank you very much. Have a good All day. Right. All right. Thank you.